Kia ora, and welcome to my daily podcast. I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka. I cover the political economy in Aotearoa, New Zealand, focused on housing affordability, climate and poverty reduction. One thing I try to keep an eye on is what's happening with interest rates, um, both globally and locally, because uh, they drive often what's happening with economic activity, and certainly they drive the housing market. And a lot of the things that are done in the political economy are done to try to keep interest rates low. And um, not always successfully, uh, but um, it's one of the um, core drivers, I think, of the current government an attempt to try to get inflation down for its own reasons, but also to try and keep mortgage rates down. It's also one of the reasons why the government is very keen to not um, uh, borrow more money and to run budget surpluses or close to it, because the lower the budget uh, deficit and the less lesser the amount of uh, government borrowing, all other things being equal, the lower the interest rates and therefore the lower the mortgage rates. So uh, you have to look at what's moving mortgage rates generally. Now there are some things going on locally around the government's borrowing, uh, what's happening with the economy, inflation, but also what's happening globally is really important. We've got an open economy where we can invest our money overseas, people can invest their money here, we've got a currency that moves around and isn't really controlled by anyone in particular. And therefore, um, we really are part of the global financial system. And that system, at the moment, uh, essentially is based off US interest rates and the US dollar, because that's the global reserve currency, it is the safe haven currency, it's the the end of the day, the the currency that things are priced in. And therefore, what the US Federal Reserve does is the manufacturer of US dollars and the um, arbiter of the core short-term interest rate for the US dollar, and that is the federal funds rate, but like our official cash rate. What happens with the Fed funds rate is very important for interest rates globally, and they really set the base for our own wholesale interest rates, uh, what we call the swaps, which are the wholesale interest rates, the banks. Uh, set after uh, trading with each other and being part of the global financial system. And so when the expectations about the US federal funds rate, often expressed in the uh, yields for US government bonds, when they move around, often that will move around eventually, sometimes quite quickly, our own wholesale rates. So for the last year or so, the trend, if anything, for interest rates uh, has been to be, uh, for wholesale interest rates, for them to be coming off their highs and dropping over the um, over the longer period. And with the expectation being that central banks, probably starting with the US Federal Reserve and eventually extending to the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, was likely to start cutting interest rates as soon as March of this year. And that's because inflation was coming off the boil in the United States. Hence why there's so much attention on US inflation, because that will drive what the Federal Reserve does, which sets the base for global interest rates. So last night we got numbers from the US um, 
Bureau of Labor Statistics, actually. They're the ones who put out the uh, Consumer Price Index information for the United States, showing that um, inflation in the United States was 0.3% in the month of January from December. Now, this was a bit higher than what people had expected. And also core inflation, particularly inflation not to do with energy or food prices, and in particular services inflation, the stuff that the um, U.S. Federal Reserve is quite focused on and observes, that has been sticky and higher than a lot of people have expected in recent months. In fact, if anything, it's been bouncing in the last four or five months. And last night, the numbers really did uh, shake people's confidence that inflation was tracking lower in time for the Fed to start cutting in March. And so we saw uh, a change in expectations about when the Federal Reserve can start cutting interest rates, where as recently as last pe week, people were talking about a real chance of a rate cut in March. Now they're talking about um, towards the uh, end of the first half, maybe not until July. Now, why is that important? Well, that means that uh, our swaps rates are unlikely to drop that much, and therefore our banks are unlikely to pass it on in the form of lower mortgage rates. You might recall up until a few weeks ago, there was also a lot of talk that the Reserve Bank of New Zealand would be able to start cutting interest rates as soon as the sort of um, May, June, July, August period. Um, now that's dried up a bit too, in part because of some recent data and what's been happening overseas, but also um, we've heard from ANZ, um, the biggest bank in the market, that they believe the next move is not going to be a cut, it's actually going to be a hike as soon as uh, um, the end of February, so a couple of weeks' time, so fortnight from now. And um, this, of course, has pumped up these wholesale interest rates. Now, at that time, about a week ago, there was some banks looking to cut rates. Well, that's off the agenda now. This is all um, important, I think, because the map for the year, the mental map for the year for the economy was that um, there was going to be a boost particularly in the second half, as both uh, the Reserve Bank cut interest rates and the looser LVR controls started to kick in, and that would boost activity in the market. Well, what we've seen now is that the prospects of that lower interest rates helping to boost the effects of the looser LVRs starting to wane. And that is a, an issue for the government, because remember they're also at the same time tightening fiscal policy, and uh, hoping that they can see some relief uh, for the squeezed middle, as they call it, uh, with lower mortgage rates. And that's unlikely to be delivered uh, given the current state of play. That's the first thing I wanted to focus on. Secondly, uh, I wanted to focus on um, a bunch of stories that have come out in recent days about global insurance premia and what's happened with climate events in the last couple of years. There has been surprisingly intense and costly uh, series of, there has been a surprisingly intense and costly series of climate events around the world, particularly in the United States, New Zealand, Australia, and in Europe in the last two or three years uh, that most climate scientists would say, are, if not directly connected, then indirectly connected with rising air and sea temperatures uh, globally. Uh, and the and uh, the result of um, carbon emissions and methane emissions going into the atmosphere and warming the planet. 
the insurance sector is now saying that the effects of climate change are now being embedded in a structural lift higher in prices for insurance and also is beginning to see some areas become uninsurable that you see an insurance retreat happening. They've described this as just another way that higher carbon costs are embedded into the economy and that's true to an extent. Um, it does pose questions for uh, homeowners who are in vulnerable areas to rising sea levels and extreme climate events and it also poses questions for governments about how much it intervenes to support insurance costs and to ensure that uh, most areas are insurable. In various places in the United States, Florida, California, uh, politicians are looking to bring in the state's balance sheet and its ability to subsidize insurance to try to soften the blow for those people who suddenly find themselves in uninsurable and therefore unsaleable homes. And that is um, one of the themes we'll see in years to come. Just worth emphasising that climate change is having real effects right now, not just in terms of the events, but also prices and costs, not just for fuel, but also insurance. And just finally, I wanted to uh, take a closer look at the Retirement Commissioner's report that came out yesterday that actually referred to the number of people who are over the age of 65, are still in employment, still earning more than $100,000 per year and connecting, collecting the New Zealand superannuation payment of around about $23,000 on average. Uh, that is worth, because there are now almost 50,000 people doing this, worth about a billion dollars. I think it's worth mentioning. Um, we see New Zealand superannuation as a piece of crucial state support to prevent poverty and it's a really effective way of getting that money to people because it's universal. There are no um, questions asked, there is no means testing, there is no superannuation surcharge or clawback, unlike in most other countries, and the universality that kicks in from 65 is a key feature of New Zealand Super which keeps its cost low. Uh, uh, however, um, as the pressure goes on, um, because of ageing populations and a perception at least that this can't be afforded, there's a move to try to delay retirement ages. And obviously that's been a debate here too, certainly in the last election, National and ACT wanted to shift their retirement age out. That was um, blocked by New Zealand First in the coalition agreement and the report from the Retirement Commissioner uh, this week is saying Actually, it's unfair to increase the retirement age. It's particularly punishing for Māori and Pacifica. And um, a more effective way, a fairer way, if you are going to respond to this perception of unaffordability for New Zealand superannuation in the long run, is to start means testing the pension. And to look at this 50,000 group of 50,000 people who are collecting a $100,000 income from their jobs or from investment earnings, uh, but also getting $23,000 a year in uh, New Zealand superannuation. The numbers are big, uh, almost $1.1 billion at the moment. And to put that into context, that's as much as the increase in benefit payments per year because of the increase of about seventy to 80,000 in the number of people 
on the main benefits in the last six years. There was a lot of complaints from the likes of um, the Mike Hoskins and the Heather Duplessis Allens of the world about people not uh, um, paying their way, not uh, pulling their weight, uh, unfairly getting payments from taxpayers who were stressed as it is, when we shouldn't forget that uh, uh, nearly 50,000 couples who are, by most people's measures, wealthy and not in need of support from the taxpayer, are receiving a billion dollars a year. And I think it's worth including in the debate. It's also worth remembering that there are some very high-profile people who are doing this, including the current Deputy Prime Minister, who receives uh, just over $300,000 a year at the moment as the Deputy Prime Minister and also collects the $23,000 New Zealand superannuation payment. He also has been eligible in the past and is current and is, has been a member of the Government Superannuation Fund. Now, this was a, a pension scheme for public servants that uh, in 1992 was closed to new members uh, because it was a defined benefit pension scheme. This is where you get paid, once you retire, you get paid a certain portion of your final salary, or the entire one, and um, you get that until you die. Now, these are very lucrative <laughs> schemes for the recipients, but of course they're very expensive to maintain, and it's clear that um, there won't be enough people to uh, pay for these things as they go, and that's why they were closed from for new entrants. So the parliamentary section of the Government Superannuation Fund was closed in 1992. Now you may argue, well who's around still that's, uh, that was in Parliament in 1992? Well, actually um, there wasn't anyone as of uh, the last term of Parliament from 2020 to 2023, because Nick Smith, uh, the last National MP to be in that situation, um, he left in 2020, he's now the Mayor of Nelson, and Winston Peters, who became an MP in 1978, um, he left of course in 2020 because New Zealand First was voted out. Now New Zealand First is back, and Winston Peters is again the Deputy Prime Minister on that $333,000. He declared in his 2020 Pecuniary Interest Register in Parliament that he was a member of the Government Superannuation Scheme. Now we don't know whether he's um, claiming uh, some sort of uh, pension on that. He would have been eligible to claim it from 2020 onwards as a former Deputy Prime Minister who is a member of the scheme. So um, he could have been claiming the um, defined benefit pension related to his last job as a Deputy Prime Minister, several hundred thousand dollars, as well as New Zealand Super. And um, the question of whether he can receive a salary and a pension at the same time for the same job is uh, worth asking, but it's clear that at the very least he's receiving New Zealand superannuation and uh, the uh, salary from being Deputy Prime Minister at the same time, which he is fully legally entitled to do. But it does raise the question, is this fair and affordable and should it change in the future? I'm Bernard Hickey, that was today's uh, uh, daily podcast. Kaki Town.